Good morning. Um, wow, I'm seriously like my lips bleeding. I just hit myself in the mouth with this microphone. What am I supposed to take away from that? Um, well, let me pray for us real quick, and then uh, we'll dive into Colossians, which is where we've been spending some time. So, Lord, it's uh, it's easy on a pretty day, and uh, when we're getting to see people that uh, we enjoy, uh, Lord, to just kind of be going through the motions this morning, and um, just ask, Father, that... Um, this time uh, of looking into your word and uh, and the worship uh, that we've participated in prior to this and well after, Lord, uh, would really uh, center our hearts and minds on the truth in such a way that would have a dramatic impact on how we uh, live the other however many hours a week uh, we have outside of these couple. So, Father, we know that it's your uh, your spirit and your movement that uh, has to happen in order for that to be true. And so uh, we ask that you would do that, uh, even in spite of all the junk we bring into this room this morning. So uh, we trust you with that, Lord, in your name. Amen. Um, We've been in a series in Colossians. Um, I'm going to be holding this today. I guess we couldn't find the handheld thing, or I guess I could maybe tape it up into my ear somehow, but um, we feel about as awkward as that other microphone, frankly. Uh, in the first few weeks, uh, the first part of this uh, series in Colossians, we've been talking about what does it look like if our lives are framed in hope. Um, both Randy and Joel and myself have been talking about uh, that, that hope and that the gospel literally expressing itself in hope becomes the framework for our lives. We are not people who are without hope. In fact, hope is the thing that defines us. Um, and that everything in my life, good, the bad, the ugly, begins to be uh, forced into the framework of hope. Uh, and last week, Randy was with you guys uh, down here as well as at downtown, began to talk about what does it look like when hope starts to grow legs. Um, just as hope is, and we talked about this in that first series, is certainty in waiting. It's not wishful thinking. We're not like, maybe this will or won't occur um, there's an aspect of it that is, is certain. I'm waiting for something that I believe by faith I know will happen. Um, as much as hope is certainty in waiting and not wishful thinking, it's also not static. It doesn't mean just sitting and just kind of twiddling our thumbs and saying, okay, I hope that this will happen, and so I'm just going to kind of like wait here and not, there's no movement in my life. I'm just waiting on God to do something. I'd really encourage you, part of what, Randy started last week, and we're going to talk about it this week. It's not a static thing. It's active. It's dynamic. This hope moves us. It doesn't just have us sitting still. So last week, Randy talked about this, that bearing fruit is an undeniable mark of a Christ follower whose life is framed in hope. That This fruit-bearing thing... Uh, is literally our new identity. That if we are not bearing fruit, we need to ask serious questions about, is my life, am I staying in step with the Spirit? Or is my life even in Christ? Because fruit bearing is an actual result of who we are now in Christ. We cannot not do it. It's who we are. So, this new identity talked about the fact that we've been grafted into Christ that literally like a cherry tree can't produce apples type thing. We literally need to be grafted to Christ in order to bear this fruit. And that it's his desire to bear fruit through us. Looked at passages like John 15 that says, Remain in me, and I in you, and apart from me you cannot do anything. Which is such a 
almost impossible thing for us to admit because we actually believe we're pretty good people who actually can do pretty good things that actually still, even though we don't claim this to be true about the gospel, merit us favor in the eyes of God. Because that's how it works down here, right? That's that's the real world, not the gospel world, right? So it's a real, real challenge about what do you believe is true about anything that you do. Is it really the fruit of the movement of the Holy Spirit in your life? Or is it you just putting your shoulder to the plow in order to earn some kind of favor? So this week, we're going to look at the second half of that sentence. So go to Colossians 1, 9 through 14. If you have a Bible, if you don't, I'll read it out loud. Um, Because Randy stopped in the middle of, well, he stopped at the end of verse 10, but it's really the middle of a sentence. Verse 10 and 11, and we're going to be focusing on verse 11 today. It says, For this reason, this is verse 9, Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you might live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit, here we are, in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience. Great endurance and patience. My lips getting fat. I can't even read. (laughs) Um, Great endurance and patience and joyfully, it says in the NIV. In the ESV, it says with joy. Great endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints, the kingdom of light. So a couple things, a few things that we're going to look at this morning. First thing is this. What in the world does Paul mean when he's saying that you might be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might? Very, very, very important statement. Second thing we're going to look at is what does endurance and patience with joy look like? How is that possible? And then the third thing, that those two things kind of colliding would add up to this thankfulness that and thankfulness it's kind of a throwaway word i mean we say thank you all the time to one another don't we uh oh thanks for that you know oh thanks you know but really it's 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 much deeper than that i encourage you to let's reframe that word thankfulness meaning this deep joyful sound genuine gratitude like from your gut deep gratitude that's the kind of thankfulness that Paul's talking about here. Not this trite thank you because you served me my coffee. Deep, deep gratitude. Okay, so let's dive in. Let's look first at great endurance and patience with joy. Most perplexing. Um, <clears throat> I don't know about you. Uh, I don't usually sandwich those terms. In fact, I rarely would even put them in the same sentence with one another. Does that seem foreign to you? Do you use the terms great endurance and patience and joy or thankfulness? Like when I talked, we had a kind of a round robin with the staff earlier in the week, and I asked, when you think of the terms great endurance and patience, what are the first things that come to your mind? Without a question, every single person, and really like a knee-jerk response, pain. When I think about great endurance and patience, I think about suffering. I think about pain, I think about difficulty, I think about something I don't want. So how in the world is Paul sandwiching these two things together? Now I know any of you run in here? Yes? Runners? 
Great. This will make sense to almost every one of you. And a few runners are the people who have that runner's high. I've heard people talk about this. Like, oh, I kind of endure. And then I like go into like some new plane of existence. And I feel like the endorphins kicking. And then I'm like happy. And I'm like feel like I can run 18 years. And I'm, you know, Forrest Gump with the beard. And I could just keep running. I don't believe that. Like, I don't even believe that exists. I think you make that up. Um, you know... I could even say this honestly. Every bit of endurance that I've exuded in physical fitness has almost undoubtedly been attached to winning the affections of a woman. (laughs) I mean, I'm serious. It's that, like, I don't have, the only joy I had in doing this was the joy I was going to get from someone else. It wasn't in the thing I was actually experiencing. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking, he's saying, Paul is telling us that part of this life in Christ will undoubtedly involve these two things. Like he doesn't say you might need great endurance and patience. It's possible it might be a part of it. They're, they're just in there. They're in the flow of the sentence. Now that seems obvious. I just told you something that we read. But why then, when we need great endurance and patience, which we would all, I think, agree, are, are necessary when we're suffering why then do we seem surprised when suffering and difficulty enters into our lives? Like, is that you? Are you the person that when things get hard, you wonder, what's happened? Why is this happening? What's going on? This shouldn't be going on. This doesn't go on, right? Why do we seem so surprised when we have need for great endurance and patience? Because Paul's saying, you will need these things. Which he is saying then, suffering, difficulty, these things are parts of your life in Christ. These are obvious elements in our lives. Every one of us could sit around and talk about things that are difficult for us. Yet, what I find myself doing oftentimes is I seek to avoid, remedy, or comfort my pain at all costs. Whatever it takes to stop feeling this way, I will do it. I don't want to find joy in it. I don't want to be thankful for it. I don't want to even endure it. I want it to end. Please, please, please take this away. And if you don't, I'll figure out what can. So, a question I'll ask you this morning. It's a question I had to ask myself pretty seriously this week. How do you respond to suffering or pain when it is in your life? What happens for me is this. I abandon everything we've talked about for these first seven weeks in Colossians. Hope, the truth, the gospel, the fact that Christ has done everything on my behalf, the fact that my life is now hidden with Christ and God, the fact that he's giving me everything I need for life and godliness. The truth of the gospel goes out the window. If the suffering is bad enough, I literally jump ship on the truth. And I start saying things like this. These are, these, by the way, these are statements that are antithetical to the gospel. Things that cannot be held side by side. Something's wrong. God's not in control. He has literally fallen off the throne. God's made a mistake. This cannot be his plan for my life. I feel ashamed because I've done something wrong. Uh-oh. I've finally blown it. I I crossed the threshold. I did it. I made some mistake that is unforgivable now. And now I'm going to get what's coming to me. 
Because the wrath of God, it wasn't satisfied. Like, he still got some, he's holding out some like pocket wrath for me and for people who just don't get it. Culturally, we're taught this. Avoid and minimize suffering at all costs. And we're taught that, that if you are suffering, if something is difficult, if something is painful, it's either because God isn't who he says he is, or you have seriously screwed something up. So ask yourself that question. It doesn't make much sense to go even any further in what we're going to talk about this morning. Is the goal of your life to avoid pain? Like, I think we, we honestly have to lean into that one for a second. Most of my life, even most of what I do here, sometimes, sadly, is about that. It's just about, God, just take away what I'm having to endure right now. I don't even want to know you through it. I don't want to experience you through it. I just want you to eliminate it. When oftentimes, what he's not bringing is just pain and trial and suffering. He is bringing himself through those things. It is the actual vehicle by which he is carrying the experience of him, not just the knowledge of him, into our lives. Paul is saying something different here. He's saying this. Those of us who are in Christ, whose lives are framed by the hope that we've been talking about, a hope that is active and growing, not static, we are people who have the capacity to respond to trials with great endurance and patience with joy. He is saying this, that it is a mark, it is a fruit of the Spirit in your life. So if you are in Christ this morning, if I'm in Christ this morning, that should be a mark of my life. That I don't run from trial, that I don't jump ship on the truth every time something gets rough. But that I actually could become someone who endures. Great endurance is, is kind of a lame word. Uh, it means long-suffering. Like the ability to endure at, at, at distance. Marathon distance. So, how does this happen? Because we don't do this. I don't do this. I won't even put you in there. I don't do this. I'm not a joyful endurer and patient man. Well, a couple things, and I think we get it from what he says here in Colossians 1, verse 9 through 14. First thing is he does is he asks this. He says, I have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with all the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Romans 12, 2 talks about this, so that you'd be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Literally, a spiritual lobotomy is what we're talking about here. An implanting, Paul talks about this, that you would now have the mind of Christ. He's literally taking out how you think, process, feel about life, and he is putting into you, as a result of spiritual wisdom and understanding and the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, an absolute new framework about how I see life. Suffering doesn't mean what it means without that framework. It means something completely different. So knowledge is an important thing. How you think. Don't be confused. There is a battle going on for how you think about everything. How you think is important. But it's not enough. And I'm thankful that he says this. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might that you would have great endurance and patience. Power is an essential aspect in walking in what we know to be true. Galatians 5.23 talks about it when he says that since you live by the Spirit, which is the truth now, stand step with the Spirit. 
It's like being three-legged race. You guys ever done a three-legged race with somebody bigger than you or longer than you or taller than you? Uh, he's literally saying, this is who you are now. Our legs are joined, and so walk with me. Stay in step with me, at the pace with me. It's that stuff in John 15. It's, it's in Philippians 4 when he says, he says, and I'm not saying this to you because I am need, for I've learned to be content, which is a good, I think, simile. Man, I totally might have just misused an English term. Synonym? Simile? Similar? Yeah, simile. Uh, for I have learned to be content, joyful, in whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. So he's saying this is it. This is how joy in any circumstance happens. Whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or more, I can do everything, everything through him who gives me strength. All of life, whatever comes across the plate, the power of Christ in you, the hope of glory, that gets talked about later in, in Colossians, is the key. Why knowledge isn't enough? I got on a flight this time, literally, um, a week ago, about right now. Maybe, a, well, I was actually on the flight, which is the terrifying part of this. Alamosa, Colorado. Anybody ever been there? Good. Um, don't. Uh, uh, airport, very small, smaller than this room. Same people who check you in. Great Lakes Airlines. Great Lakes Airlines, great name. Out in Colorado, Great Lakes are in the Midwest. Makes a lot of sense. Um, one-way flight back and forth to Denver. Small plane, 14-seater. Seven on each side, three in the back. So I guess that would be more than 14. That would be like 17. Um, no door between you and the cockpit. Awesome. Love that. Love being able to see out the windshield. Love being able to see the pilots and everything that they're doing or not doing. Like Rubik's Cube. That happened on the larger flight. But anyways, um, so we get up on this flight. We literally walk out the door. And this is the kind of airport where people, like, it's like, hello, welcome to Great Lakes Airlines. We're like, yeah, we're here to check in. They check you in, and then they go behind a door, and then they're gone. You're like, okay, where are they at? And then they come out, and they have the TSA uniforms on. And they're like, we'll take your baggage over here, sir. And you're like, but you, you work for the, you work for both? You work for the airline and the government. Okay, so I give you my bags, and then they rubber glove and through the whole thing, and then they're checking you on your flight. I'm like, is this lady who checked me in at Great Lakes going to fly my plane? Uh, I mean, it's like everybody does everything at these kind of airports. Well, anyways, college-age pilot, like 23-year-old guy, standing there kind of doing the Top Gun thing on the wing, looking at everything, you know, <laughs> taking it in. Looks at me, he's like, yeah, weather's bad in Denver. It's going to be a bumpy flight. And I'm like, okay, awesome, dude. Like, I'm already sick to my stomach thinking about climbing on this, like, duct-taped-up machine that, you know, every other airline didn't want and sold to you at wholesale. Uh, thank you. Uh, how about you keep the weather forecast to yourself and just, you know, I was it was unnerving. Anyways, but he says it, so we're kind of talking and everything. I climb on the flight. We get up in the air. Literally 20 minutes into the flight, um, the definition of turbulence happens. Um, and I, I've got to be honest, I've flown a lot, internationally, everything. I have never experienced anything like this. Uh, we were talking like plane falling out of the sky, like 40-foot drops, like plane is pointing this way because I can see out the windshield, and I know that. Uh, but we're still flying this direction, like, and you're feeling that. And to top it all off, um, during the moments of turbulence, 
sirens are going off in the cockpit. I'm not kidding you. That loud, as loud as I just screamed, the plane's not that big. People are literally going, Oh, my God! Oh, God! Oh, you're... Stuff is flying into the air. Your seatbelt is actually necessary to keep you from breaking your neck on the on the ceiling. Guys are scrambling in the cockpit. Alarms are going off in the cockpit. It was crazy. And you know what I did was I said, okay, I well he told me he told me it was going to be turbulent, so I just you know I sat back and relaxed. I mean, isn't that crazy? Like, doesn't life feel like that sometimes? Like, okay, Lord, you've told me. I have the knowledge that this is going to be difficult. But I have no ability to live in the truth of what I know. Because my life feels like that plane. Sirens are going off. The plane feels like it's going down. And I am terrified. Knowledge is not enough. We live in a culture that teaches us this. Knowledge is power. Go get another degree, read the next book, have another conversation with your therapist. All the great things. But what we really believe when we're believing that is, is come here, listen to this sermon, and I'm going to get some nugget of knowledge, and I'm going to take that nugget of knowledge, I'm going to go home and work it. Because I can work it. Because I'm the person who implements knowledge in my life. Paul is saying something severely different here. He's saying the Lord gives us the knowledge and he also gives us the power to implement the knowledge, to become people whose lives are marked by great endurance and patience and joyful suffering. Both knowledge and power are gifts from him. They're acts of his grace to us on his behalf. It's a very important thing. I struggle with this. I have my whole life and here's why. Growing up as a child, you're told what to do. You learn something in school. What are you expected to do? You're expected to be able to implement that truth into your life. What happens if you don't? You get an F or you're seen as somehow deficient. What sets in? Shame. I become ashamed because I have no ability to act, to live out of what I know is true. And hear me say this. It is impossible for you to be joyful, for you to be thankful when you're ashamed. When shame is a mark of your life, you have no ability to be joyful or thankful. William Blake is a famous author, said this, and this unraveled me. Shame is pride's cloak. Shame is pride's cloak. And I think he has it right. My tendency to become ashamed is as, as a result of my inability to implement, to believe the pilot and just sit there and relax because, hey, he told me it's going to be turbulent, right? My inability to live in the knowledge of what I know is true simply exposes my depth of my belief in myself. I actually believe, okay, God, I know I couldn't, I know I couldn't save myself, but you saved me and you, you did this on the cross. I got it from here. Okay, oh, well, now you tell me that you have to reveal everything to me um, and knowledge and wisdom and understanding come from you. Okay, thank you for the wisdom and understanding. I got it from here. <laughs> He's saying there is no I got it from here. He's saying everything, what I did on the cross for you, everything you know, and every ounce of any ability you have to live in the truth of this is stemming from my power, from my grace, from my revelation. You see, it all breaks down. 
And here's when it breaks down for me. When some form of suffering is introduced in my life that I clearly see my inability to deal with. I cannot deal with this. I hate my job. I absolutely despise what I do eight hours a day. My life feels meaningless. I don't have a job. I'm terrified. Where's my next paycheck coming from? How can I provide for myself? I feel trapped. What about the loss of a child? The loss of a spouse? What about chronic singlehood? Is anybody ever going to want to be in a relationship with me? What about divorce? I mean, I could give you an enormous list. Whatever it is that you bump up into and you finally say, I, I cannot deal with this. There's a film, The Edge. Have you seen The Edge? Plane Crash and The Edge? Older film. Yeah, I'm on plane crashes this morning. I'm sorry. I feel like, dude, it's kind of depressing. Um, Anthony Hopkins, Alec Baldwin, and the guy who plays... What? He's the guy from Lost. I don't even watch Lost. I'm sorry. Whoa. Street cred points down. Uh... So they have a plane crash. They're going to like do some photo shoot in like some remote Alaskan area with uh, you know the plane that lands in the water. They get in a wreck because gooses run into their windshield. And anyways, they crash in the water. They build a fire, and they realize we are lost. Like we're not kind of lost. Like we're in the middle of nowhere, and no one knows where we're at. And everywhere you look, although pretty, if you were dropped off there by a boat and we're going to go to a home-cooked meal in a lodge later on that night, yeah, sit back and relax. Take it in. <clears throat> in this situation, they're realizing, I don't know how many mountains I'm going to have to cross. I don't know. What are we going to do? And Alec Baldwin and the guy from Lost, Michael, Michael but he's not Michael in that film, um, are, are literally looking at Anthony Hopkins, this billionaire guy who has read so much stuff. He's got all this knowledge in his head that's about to come into play, which is an important thing uh, in the context of what we even were saying this morning. Looks at him and says, what are we going to do? And he says this to him. I think this is just so fascinating. He says, I once read an interesting book, and it said that most people on the lost, who are lost in the wilds, they die because of shame. Yeah, they think, what did I do wrong? How could have I gotten myself into this? So they just sit there and die. Because they didn't do the one thing that could have saved their lives. And they asked him, what is that, Charles? And he, uh, and he answered them, thinking. Now, thinking isn't a true gospel term in the sense, but follow me here. I hope this makes sense. When I'm up against something that I don't know what to do and I'm terrified, that's what happens. I lose my ability to even think gospelly, sane thoughts. The truth goes out the window. Anything that I've ever heard that the Lord has spoken to me, my experience of Him caring for me and carrying me through trials in the past, it's like they don't even exist. Because I'm so acutely focused on the situation at hand and I'm so still believing that I'm the one who has gotten myself into this and I'm the one who has to get myself out of this. What am I going to do? When the pain becomes too much, when it becomes beyond our ability to handle, we stop thinking. Or in scriptural terms, we stop remembering. You abandon, I abandon the truth. 
the knowledge, the wisdom, the spiritual understanding, the things that he, have gi- he has given us. N.T. Wright talked about endurance and patience being like weapons. The things that he has given us to fight against the absolute insanity and fear that feels like it's absolutely taking me captive at the moment of my suffering. What I'm saying is that when we're faced with trials, we are faced with a choice. And what Paul's saying here is is that choice is a grace-empowered choice. It's rooted not in our strength and our ability, which is what shame brings up, because it's pride. What, What do I bring to the table to get myself out of this? It's rooted in his might. And here's what it is. It's to not abandon or distort the truth in order to cope with my pain. You do not have to abandon, stop thinking something about God, or start thinking something about yourself that's not true, or distort that truth in order to deal with the pain of your life. In fact, the gospel gives us that invitation to walk into it even with joy. Let me tell you something about joy. This joy, it's not happy joy. It's not, you know, a couple beers at uh, at the show, rock show with my buddies joy. This joy is madness. Paul even says this joy looks like foolishness to the world. This joy looks like irresponsibility. (laughs) We need spirit-empowered endurance and patience, not just to weather the trials of our lives, the things that are difficult, but this is even more, to me this is the most painful aspect of this but to weather the erosion of the truth that the trials attempt to accomplish. It's not just the pain of what I'm actually experiencing. It's the fact that the pain represents a hatchet at the root of where my hope is. And the pain of literally betraying your hope is the deepest pain. It's far more painful than the pain of what you're experiencing betraying what you know is true because He has put it inside of you by His Holy Spirit. That's what we need great endurance and patience for, is to weather that, the abandonment of the truth, not just what we're facing. So here's where joy comes in. And I say this, this is like a mystery to even try to explain. Joy comes in when by the power of, And by his power that he's described here, we fall headlong into the truth that Paul talks about in Colossians 2, 20, when he says, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, basic principles like I am my own protector, I am my own defender, I am my own provider. God really wants me to dig myself out of this hole. In fact, he's pretty angry with the fact that he's told me the truth and now I can't live in it. We're back to the law. Since you have died to those principles... Why do you act like you still belong to them and submit to their rules? He goes on in Colossians 3 to say, Since then you have been raised with Christ. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is literally living inside of you as a result of the Holy Spirit. Set your hearts on things above. Fasten the affections of your hearts and minds on the truth. Strap them down. Write them on the door frames. Write them on your hands. Whatever you got to do to remember it. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. Hear that statement. This is where the joy comes in. You died. 
and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. You know what the greatest freedom is? The greatest joy is, is when you're finally free from you. When your life stops being about you. You know what kind of relief that is? To wake up every day and realize I don't have to be so absolutely obsessed with myself today and what I'm going to get out of today because my life is now hidden with Christ and God. So Lord, whatever you want to bring in. If you want to bring in trials, if you want to bring in fun, I will celebrate those things. I will welcome those things. And I will believe that those things are things that you've brought into my life because that's what the gospel says. And that those are ways that I can experience you. The result is thankfulness. Deep, genuine gratitude to the Father. Have you ever tried to act thankful for something that you didn't really want? (laughs) It's painful, isn't it? My mom is a clinical force feeder. Uh, even if I'm not enjoying, like, goulash, that's a northern dish or something like that, she will literally, oh, you want some more? I mean, you put your hand over the plate, and she'll put it on top of your hand. <laughs> or how about when your grandparents, who don't really know what you like, buy you clothes for Christmas? Oh, thank you, Grandma. I'm in junior high, and I wanted a shirt with a pony on it. Um, that'll really go over well with the guys in the locker room. I mean... Isn't it? It's impossible to fake it. I mean, we get away with it. We kind of we mask it well in our culture. Like, oh, thank you, that meant so much. You know, we we that's a throwaway statement. But real thankfulness, you can't fake it. Like, you cannot fake that kind of gratitude. So hear me say this. Therefore, we are those people who, as a result of the hope that we have, we even have the audacity, because it's audacity. I mean, it's outrageous to say what Paul's saying here. To joyfully welcome trials. To joyfully welcome the need for long-suffering and patience. Because the presence of these things reminds me of the truth. And this is it. Paul or Joel's going to talk about this tomorrow, or next week. That we were made for a kingdom that is not this world. It reminds me that I was made for more than what this fallen world has to offer me. It reminds me that we are those who hope entirely in Christ. We hope for Him to know the truth, all wisdom and all knowledge. And we hope for Him to live as people with great endurance and patience, joyfulness and thankfulness. We need to be reminded of this. Disappointment reminds us of this. I went to you too. I'll end with this. I went to you too and I was disappointed. And I can't even believe I'm saying that out of my mouth. I mean, right? Biggest sound system ever. Giant spaceship claw thing. Huge TV that looks like a Chinese finger torture thing when it extends out. Bono said this to me. He said this to me. He said, I'm going for intimacy tonight. He said, as crazy as that sounds, I'm going for intimacy. But here was the problem. We had bought tickets with Chad and Carly. And they weren't there. Chad was sick. They just had a child. And um, those tickets, I couldn't sell them, which I had a great deal of shame about. But it was so funny to feel this. And I, I say this as, as not someone who's super spiritual because um, I was really grinding that night. I was grinding in my own head and heart. But it felt so funny because what Bono was promising me, he couldn't deliver on. As great as he tried, as much as he tried, what I wanted more than anything is is I wanted my friend there. I wanted the man who does know me there. 
I wanted the man who will know me for the rest of my life, who knows the hardest things in my life, who's walked with me through the most difficult things in my life, who shares fellowships in my sufferings, who births patience and great endurance by reminding me of the gospel. Bono's lyrics, though they touch and though they evoke, they're punchlines in my life, not relationship. It felt so good to feel it, guys, to have spent so much money and feel like all this still doesn't do it. (laughs) It doesn't do it. And it's beautiful. God, it's amazing. And it's not enough. I loved the feeling, but it was a bittersweet feeling, and that's what this joy is. I'm not talking about slap, happy joy. I'm talking about deep thankfulness. Thank you, Jesus, for reminding me that this world, that the spaceship, that the event, the next thing I'm waiting for, the the meta event, as Bono would call it, can't do it. Thank you for reminding me that I was made for more than this. Let's pray. Father, we are not folks who endure well often. I'm not someone who oftentimes is even willing to do what you invite me into doing, which is considering how these trials and these difficulties are ways that you are inviting me into a deeper experience of you, Father. Lord, I pray that you would do what Paul asks. Give us strength and power and great endurance and patience. Give us joy, Father. We're dependent on those just as we're dependent on wisdom and understanding to come from you. In your name, amen.